Hey there listeners, welcome to Horror Movie Club, the show where two dudes who aren't quite nerds but not quite noobs choose a horror movie each week to rate and review. I'm Ashvin, I've got Brian on the phone with me, and on today's episode we're going to be talking about the 2019 horror film Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, directed by Andre Overdahl and starring Zoe Coletti, Michael Garza, and Gabriel Rush. In this film, four kids discover a book that starts writing stories that play out in real life, much to their detriment. <laughs> if you're new to the show, Brian and I are going to have a spoiler-free discussion up front. We'll go over the background of the film. Then we'll take a quick break, get close some music, and then we'll dive in to the plot summary, hit some spoilers, and get into our review. Brian, first watch for you. Yes, I had not seen this. You saw it in the theater, didn't you? I did, yeah. Back in 2019, I think over the summer, I, I think I caught this one. Um, but there, there was a lot to be excited for this one. I, I think we were pretty excited before its release, right? Yeah, I get excited when these things from my childhood get releases, but then they come out and I don't really go see them. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know why. I feel like it's just that I'm done. Although I never really got into scary stories to tell in the dark. I think I had a book on my shelf and mm-hmm. I remember flipping through the illustrations, but I don't really ever remember reading it. Oh, man. How did you not read them? I don't know, man. I Maybe I read one and wasn't into it, and so just stopped. Yeah. Okay. You were so into the books? Yeah, I was a huge fan. I, I feel like this was such like a big part of my journey into like loving scary movies and horror. Like I feel like these books were like the best introduction because they were pretty grim for like kids' books and uh, just like e- even those graphics. I mean, do you remember a lot of those? Yeah, I mean, I remember even though I'd never actually read the text of the book, or if I did, I don't remember it. I remember vividly the illustrations and how they made me feel. Yeah, <laughs> they're very <laughs> creepy. They're really creepy. Yeah, even the covers and yeah, the illustrations throughout. Yeah. Um, uh, and then, uh, oh, so so you never actually read any of the stories in there? If I did, I don't remember. I have a feeling okay. I probably read a couple and was like, eh, and didn't continue. <laughs> I didn't <laughs> really ever insane. read short stories as a kid. Maybe that was part of it. Oh, okay, okay. You went, like, straight for the novels. Yeah. I, I mean, not saying, like, oh, man, yeah, man. But I <laughs> just wasn't really <laughs> that familiar with that format, so I maybe yeah. it just gave me pause. But sure, I was a sure. Goosebumps kid. Yeah, and Goosebumps, like, those chapters are so quick, you can, like, fly through that book, whereas, uh, I don't know, I I still feel like short stories have, like, some power in the horror field, like, because, like, there's uh, something scary about, like, this, how, how, like, quick it is, and, like, it's in and out, Uh, so I I, I don't know, sometimes I feel like the short story format, it can be a little more effective. I agree, I agree, I think we've said that on certain episodes about anthologies, too. That yeah, just, you don't have to take the time to come up with this entire story and character and backstory and gigantic right. plot. You can just say, "I've got an idea for something that would be creepy," and you do right. it. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, just focus on the scare. Um, and and I, I think similar to the last movie we reviewed, uh, this one also is uh, someone taking an anthology and putting it together into one story. Oh uh, yeah, there you go. Right. Yeah, good interesting. Tie back. To the blood on yeah. Satan's claw. Yeah, yeah, interesting strategy there. But yeah, I, I thought we were excited about the the book being something from our childhood, which it sounds like you're familiar at least with the drawings. You've got a, a director I think we both like, right? Right, with we've Andre. covered two of his prior films. Yeah, and, and you, you like him, right? Yeah, sure. A 2010 Stroll Hunter, we reviewed that. I feel like I was right around a three, three and a half. Yeah. And then I really enjoyed 2016's The Autopsy of Jane Doe. Same. Yeah, that was, that was a great one. 
Yeah. It, oh, before then, we get too far away from the books, we should probably mention that the author of those books is Alvin Schwartz, and they were illustrated by Stephen Gamel. Oh, I didn't realize that. Okay. And three separate cool. books, one published in 1981, one in 1984, and one in 1991, and each one was like 25 to 30 short stories. Wow, yeah. Uh, That's a lot of really short cool. stories back in there. It really is, yeah, and, and really dark, graphic, pretty scary. And I, I think one thing that was really cool that I remember vividly is, uh, do you remember when books would come with like a cassette, like an audio cassette of someone reading the book? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, huh? I don't know. I remember that section of the library that had audiobooks, and I was always just like, "What?" Yeah. Did you have audio. an audiobook version of this? I did because, like, the voiceover. I think it was done by like some famous actor or something. But it was like really scary, and I still can like hear that voice, and it's still like a lot of those stories live in my mind because of like that voice and that narration. Uh, so it's so, like the audiobook on this one killed it. Oh, cool, man! I'm I'm glad that you have that memory. Yeah, I'm gonna find one and send it to you. I feel like this is this is one that's like worth revisiting because it might still hold up in in our old age here. Yeah, I almost tried to get the book from the library and read a few of the stories before this episode, but I just didn't have the time or commitment <laughs> desire. Yeah, yeah, you actually have a library card. Oh yeah. Oh, nice. Oh, where do you go? Hey, <laughs> is it true that uh, libraries have gotten rid of the whole idea of like finding people for keeping books out late? I think at least ours has. I I don't get fined anymore when I'm super late. So what's the incentive to return your book then? Common decency. Oh, self-respect. Now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know what the story is. Did you hear that somewhere or read it in the news? Yeah, I feel like last time I was talking to someone about a library, right? I, was, I was like amazed by this fact that like you don't they don't charge like that nickel a day or dime a day anymore, which like killed me as a kid. Every, every time I'd borrow a book from the library, like that was just a, a guarantee that was going to happen and uh, run me dry. So I, I just don't get how it works anymore. You know, with children, you're much more likely to have a library card. So I'm sure you will again one day soon. Sure, <laughs> and discover this. Yeah, <laughs> this new system of library. Uh, but yeah, borrowing. we used to like with the kids, we would get just like twenty books, and then the fines would be crazy. But just yeah. the past year or so, I've noticed I don't. We don't really get them anymore. That's awesome! Wow, yeah, really, really curious what this new model is. Um, third, third reason to be excited about this film, I think, is Guillermo del Toro. You a big fan of his? Boy, you cannot say that name. Are you sure that's not nice? I thought I practiced it. Say it <laughs> How again. How would you say it? Guillermo? <laughs> Guillermo. Now you say it. Guillermo? You've never heard anyone say Guillermo before? Uh, I think just in this conversation, this is the first time I've heard it. <laughs> Have you not heard someone say Guillermo before? <laughs> no. I, yes, you. And I was wondering to myself as I was preparing for this episode, I wonder if he's going to say Guillermo again. I can't even say it how you say it. <laughs> Guillermo, is that is that right? Guillermo. Okay, Guillermo. Let's just yeah, Del, Del Toro. Are you you excited about that? I mean, like, are you a fan of his? You know, I don't think I've really seen that many things of his. Um, he's got some of his most notable horror or horror esque films are Chronos from nineteen ninety three. Haven't seen The Devil's Backbone from 2001. I haven't seen Mimic in 1997. I saw in the theater. Oh, Mimic! I forgot that was him. Yeah, Blade Two. I don't think I ever saw that. Pan's Labyrinth. I saw Crimson Peak. I saw and it was fine. And The Shape of Water. I saw and really enjoyed. And then the series got Nightmare Alley. 
Mm. Yeah. So I can't say I am familiar enough with his work to say if I'm a fan or not. But how about you? Uh, yeah, I've seen a handful of those. Uh, yeah, Mimic, Hellboy, uh, Pan's Labyrinth, etc. Shape of Water, obviously, everyone loved. Uh, I, I do generally like his work. I don't know if I'd go as far, though, to call him like a horror director, because I always feel like there's like a magical, like mystical or f- fantasy element to, to his work. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I would never like put him in the horror category, would you? I don't know. I guess that was an interesting experience I had with Pan's Labyrinth. I watched, I mean, this was like 15 years ago. I was a much less uh, intelligent film viewer back then, but mm-hmm. I expected a horror movie, and then I just wasn't happy with the end result. I think I'd like to watch it again now and just evaluate it as a movie in general, but yeah, I was expecting horror and that. I don't really call that horror. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's a really interesting one because you definitely have like monsters in there and like some pretty scary imagery. Right. But something about the story, uh, it doesn't like necessarily like feel like an obvious horror film. So yeah, it's a very very interesting. Yeah. Um, but I I, I think uh, Mimic though is like a true horror film. I, I I don't remember it that one that one quite well, but I, I feel like that's more traditional horror. Yeah, I always get that confused with another one around the same time called Relic. But yeah, yeah from what I remember, out. Mimic was traditional horror. Yeah, that was funny that those two like very similar like monster like underground, right? Yeah, and, right. Uh, yeah, I picture like tunnels and a uh, white woman running from a monster. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very nineties. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and they came out like very, around very similar times. So uh, interesting. Yeah. Uh, but cool, cool to see his name attached uh, here. Um, so yeah, I, I, I had kind of like high expectations going into it. Uh, I, did you were you like expecting big things here? I had tempered expectations because I just feel like I didn't hear it being lauded by critics and fans after all the hype around it happened so much yeah. in the horror community. People talk and talk and talk about a movie, and then it's released, and it seems like the conversation stops. <laughs> Isn't that so weird? Like that phenomenon. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think it's human nature. We're always looking for the future for something to save us from our misery. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then once and it's when out, we like, realize that nothing it. can save us, we the thing we thought could save us didn't save us. It's time to look forward to the next thing. For the next thing. Oh, man. Yeah, yeah. Like people are like looking forward to the next episode of this podcast already. <laughs> exactly. And then they're like... <laughs> Fuck, why do I listen to these idiots? Dude doesn't even know how to say Guillermo. <laughs> yeah. Guillermo, you mean? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. Uh, that, that, that's a really good point. I, I feel like we've seen a few movies uh, in the last year or two where a lot of hype, and then suddenly it just goes like radio silence. So uh, interesting that you like tempered your expectations going into this. I think it also uh, has the... I, I think when it's like getting a... It's, it's PG-13, right? Yes, it is. So, so it's, it's feel- gateway horror. I would I would put it in that genre. Yeah, though I thought you would defend the PG-13 stuff because I, I feel like I, I always kind of like knock something down when it's PG-13, but I think you, you like PG-13 stuff maybe? It's not that I think that... I don't think people should focus so much on the rating. Like if the story merits an R, great. If the story works with a PG-13, great. Like I don't see a PG-13 and get bummed about it. I don't see an yeah. R and get excited about it. Interesting. Like, if there'll you, be news stories and horror news websites where it's like, we've just learned that this movie is going to be rated R, and everyone's like, yeah! <laughs> Fine, good, I guess. It doesn't matter that much to me. I like R-rated films. I think there's plenty of great PG-13 rated films as well. 
I don't know, man. I, I think in horror you need to have art because PG thirteen implies you're, you're you're restricting yourself a little bit, or, or you're kind of pulling back or restraining a little bit, uh, just because like this is a genre that's all about like death and and like monsters and stuff and trying to be scary. So if if you're pulling back to PG thirteen, that means you're not kind of following through on like the gut instinct of the genre. Interesting. They said PG thirteen means restricted. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I think that's what it stands for. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yes and no. I mean, The Ring is terrifying, and that's PG-13. Oh, that so, one was PG-13? Yeah. Oh, wow. I think it okay. just, you can tell a story, you can tell a very scary story with PG-13. And I think I'm always in the camp. I think the biggest difference between the two of us is that you want to see more, and I like to have things left to the imagination. Oh, yeah. Here we go. Back to the imagination. Back, yeah. Yeah. Back. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Um, yeah, yeah, I hear you. I, I guess I just get in the head of like the director, the story writer. Like When they're writing it, are they writing a story and then pulling it back to say, okay, I'm going to make this PG-13, or we got to shoot it this way to get PG-13? That, that, that's what it always seems like to me. It's like it's, it's, it's like a, uh, you're pulling back on, on like your original goal. Like I don't know if someone sets out and like the original story they write is going to be PG-13, but I don't know. Do you, you think like with The Ring in this film, like maybe the original script was PG-13 as it was? I think the... That can happen with some films, like the Black Christmas remake. That should have been a rated R film, but that was more deliberately pulled back. But this is a movie about a book that was written for kids. There's no reason it should be rated R. Yeah, that's a good point, too. That's fair. Yeah, I, I, I guess the, the the fact that it's a kid's book plus the PG-13, maybe I'm, I'm kind of looking at it in, in a, a, a bit of a different lens. I mean, uh, it could be cool to have an R-rated version, too, for the adults that grew up with this stuff, but... Yeah, if it yeah. was, its legacy is as a gateway horror book series. Then I think it should it deserves the right to be a gateway horror for the next generation. Sure, sure, that makes sense. It's interesting though, because like last year you had uh, Fear Street, which I don't know, I'd consider that maybe like a gateway horror uh, series, but that was actually like pretty graphic, and like I'm sure if it was, uh, I know it was like a Netflix release, but I'm, I feel like theatrically it would have been an R. So interesting how like some of them uh, would be. Yeah, more more pulled back versus other ones would be Courier. Right, and Fear Street, I mean, it was still for kids, but it was a older audience. It was more teen-focused. Young adults. Yeah. yeah. Sure. Okay. But yeah, That's good fair. point. I mean, that was something that was from a lot of people's childhood childhoods that went hard, and this one yeah. kept it PG-13. Sure, sure. Uh, full core? What do you think? What? Full core? <laughs> this movie? <laughs> Isn't it like based on folklore? These are two different things, man. We need to... <laughs> folk horror has nothing to do with folklore. I mean, okay. it can in terms of like paganism and folklore behind the, the religion and stuff like that, but just oh, something sure, based sure. on like a fairy tale or urban legends is not folk horror. I don't know, man. I saw a pastor in this one, but thought you might be. <laughs> <laughs> Not to be cu- confused with the uh, folklore, the album by Taylor Swift. That, that's a whole other genre of horror. Um, <laughs> no, it's not. It's lovely. This is very lovely. <laughs> um, hey, uh, oh, we saw Marco Beltrami again. He's he's been in like a bunch of films that we've been watching, right? From, yeah, yeah. He scored this one. Has we just have been watching a bunch of Scream films that he scored all of, except for Scream Five. I don't think he scored Scream Five, but yeah, he scored oh. this one. Okay, cool. Yeah, good to see his name pop up again. Um, Success-wise, I mean, I, I think this was a, a success, 104 
million in the box office on a budget of 25 to 28. So it seems like it got the audience in the poll that it needed to to be successful. What do, what do you think? Yeah, I saw somewhere, I, not somewhere, I saw on Deadline.com that 20 million was reportedly, reportedly spent on advertising. Hmm. So if yeah. you take that into effect and you try to, and you consider that theaters take half of the box office pull, then maybe it's not quite as profitable sure. as it was. But mm. uh, yeah, yeah it, it, I'm sure it was probably in the black. Okay. Yeah, and they're doing a sequel, which makes me think uh, there must be some uh, money in there. Right, right. And I saw somewhere that they made another uh, $10 million on DVD sales and stuff like that. So yeah, it was profitable oh, okay. for sure. Okay. And like pretty uh, decent reviews for a horror film. I think it's got like a 77 on Rotten Tomatoes. So, yeah. Um, yeah. You know, it's funny. You talked about the anthology, this being an anthology that was made into one movie. And did you see Del Toro's quote about anthology films? I did. Yeah. That was, that was a really cool quote. Something about like the people remember the weakest link and the, extrapolate that to the whole film. Yeah, I wanted to get your perspective on that. His quote is, anthology films are always as bad as the worst story in them. They're never as yeah. good as the best story. Do I you never agree? felt that. No, no, I didn't, I didn't quite agree. Like, I mean, like, uh, I feel like with every anthology, you know there's going to be one that sucks and one that's like going to knock it out of the park. That's what's so great about anthologies. Yeah, so, I uh, totally disagree with him. Yeah, <laughs> I know, that's so strange, right? Because <laughs> <laughs> I love anthology movies. and Yeah, just basically what you just said. There's always one that's just kind of weak. Yeah, right. It might that's, make the other one stand out more. Right. And that's kind yeah. of the beauty of an anthology film is because it's forgiving. Like in a normal film, if the second act sucks, it can poison the third act because everything bleeds into the next act. It's all the same characters. It's the same same story. Right, yeah. But it's all with compartmentalized it. with an anthology. You just start over again. Yeah, yeah, that part's great. Yeah, I'm kind of bummed uh, when people take an anthology and try to make it into one film. I think that's kind of a recipe for disaster. But have you seen that work in any other context or film? You know, it's so weird. I never really even thought about that concept of taking either source material or an original screenplay that was set up as an anthology and turning it into one story until we covered The Blood Blood on Satan's Satan's Claw and learned that that was the origin of the script. And now here again with this one. Yeah, um, right, right. The script was never set, written as an anthology series. It was just decided. It's it's an obvious movie to think about making an anthology because the book is an anthology series, but they right. just, yeah. Guillermo hates them. Yeah, yeah, I guess. Very strong opinions on that one. Yeah. Um, well, cool. Any other uh, background you want to go over? Uh, I think you already said there's a sequel in the works, right? Right, yep. That was reported last reported in November of 2020, and I haven't heard much about that since then. So, and it's still got like Andre Overdahl tied to it. I think. Yes, right? yes, yeah. and I think we mentioned this in a recent episode as well. But Andre Overdahl is working on something I'm really excited about. It's uh, an upcoming project called The Last Voyage of the Demeter, which mm. is based on a chapter called The Captain's Log from Bram Stoker's Dracula. Oh, cool. Wow. That's great. And uh, you know what? Some some other actors we didn't mention who are in this, and I will bring it up now because Javier Botet will play Dracula in that film. Okay. And he also played the big toe corpse in this movie. The the big, the which corpse? The corpse in the scene with the stew that has a toe in it. Oh, 
The nine-toed uh, corpse? The ghoul, yes, exactly. Okay, oh, cool. That's Javier That's awesome. Botet. And we recently talked about Javier Botet because he played the crooked man in The Conjuring 2. Oh, cool. He played a ghoul in his house, and he played the leper in the 2017 version of Stephen King's It. Nice. He was Mama awesome. in the film Mama, and he was Slender Man. Wow. Oh, my God. That's, that's quite a list of uh, roles. And the Good jangly man ghoul in this movie is played by Troy James, who was also in Malignant and Anything for Jackson. Oh, same contortionist? Yep. Nice. And then Harold and the Pale Lady were played by Mark Steger. He plays the Demogorgon in Stranger Things. Oh, cool. Harold was an actual actor? I thought that was just like a CGI dude. Right? That's what I thought, too. I think there's got to be a heavy CGI assist in a lot of this because yeah. things looked very CGI heavy, didn't they? Yeah, they did. They did, yeah. yeah. Definitely. I was surprised that. to see all these actors portraying the ghouls, so um, yeah. I think there was a heavy assist on CGI, too. I, I think so, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, did you recognize like any of the kid actors? No, I didn't. Did you? No, but it was weird to see like Hank from Breaking Bad. Right, and Stella's dad. Yeah, that was a, a weird role. But, uh, uh, no, didn't recognize anyone else. Yeah. Um, oh, there's a book in Pan's Labyrinth called The Book of Crossroads, which also writes itself, and that served as inspiration for this film's plot, with the the book being a central element to the plot. Oh, cool. That's awesome. I don't remember that from Pan's Labyrinth. That's very interesting. That cool. was all my background info. Do you have anything else before I hit the Ohio Connection? Uh, nothing else. Let's do the Ohio Connection. All right. As always, our friend Alex, who owns the Jukebox Bar and Restaurant in Cleveland, Ohio, connects every movie we watch to our home state of Ohio for us. If you're in Northeast Ohio, we highly recommend you swing by Jukebox for a beer and some food. And Alex says, Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark is a horror film based on the children's book series of the same name. The screenplay was adapted from a story by Academy Award-winning director Guillermo del Toro, who also serves as the film's producer, alongside longtime film producer Sean Daniel. Daniel was a powerhouse producer throughout the 80s and 90s. He began working at Universal Pictures in 1976 and was named the studio's youngest production president in 1985. He supervised and financed some of the most successful films of the time, including Sixteen Candles, National Lampoon's Animal House, Fast Times at Ridgemont High, The Breakfast Club, Tombstone, and many more. After his work with Universal, he spun off his own production company for films like The Mummy, Dazed and Confused, Michael and Sam Raimi's A Simple Plan, a neo-noir crime thriller based on a book of the same name, which is set in a small, snow-covered town in northern Ohio. Oh, cool. Well done, Good Alice. Good one. Yeah, and yeah. And I learned a, a lot about uh, Sean Daniel, who I'd never heard of before. <laughs> Me neither. Yeah, he's tied to some huge films. Yeah, for sure. Wild. All right, cool. Great connection. Thanks, Alex. Yeah. Um, you ready to jump in? Jump into the plots. Uh, talk. <laughs> I'm gonna jump and then I'll jump. <laughs> yeah, all right. Let's take a quick break to take a dump here. But yeah, or I'm gonna also... try to jump and accidentally dump when I do it. Oh man, I hate when that happens. I don't move as easy as, easily as I used to. <laughs> I know. Really kills the aerodynamics on the you jump. You strain for one thing and something else happens. <laughs> yeah. Physics doesn't work out on that one. Uh, all right. Well, yeah, let's take a quick break and then we'll jump into the uh, plots and uh, the spoilers in our review. Um, and yeah, I, I just heard a, a noise outside uh, the, the doors. I want to go check on what that is. So you mind if we uh, take a quick break here? Yeah, sure, man. <laughs> all right, I'll be right back. Okay.
All right, hey, dude, sorry about that. I'm back. Yeah, everything okay with that noise? Uh, yeah, uh, I, I just, uh, this, this random butt cheek fell down the uh, chimney. Uh, I'm not, not sure what that means. <laughs> one but, single um, butt cheek. <laughs> yeah, one single butt cheek. You ever <laughs> have that happen to you? I'm n- no, I've never, never had any body parts fall down the chimney. The butt yeah, cheek would be yeah. the last thing I'd expect. I know. It's a random one. I, I think I might make a soup out of it or something. But, I mean, uh, if your body is falling apart, I mean, there's a crack right there, so I guess it makes sense. Yeah, that would be one of the, like, the It's got to be a weak go. point in the structure. Exactly. Especially if like you're sitting right on the chimney, Like if you think about like the parts that are most likely to fall down. Sure, but, sure. But you're like half on, half on, half hot. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Trying to pull a dump and jump? <laughs> Lose a butt cheek on the way. <laughs> All right, so let's dive into the plot here. Uh, this movie kicks off in 1968. We're in like a small town in America. Uh, we meet our three main characters, who are this group of high schoolers. You've got Stella, Augie, and Chuck. It's Halloween night. Stella is not wanting to go out, but her friends call her on the walkie-talkie. And they're like, "We got to do this. We've been planning this for months. They've got some kind of big master plan in mind." We find out that their plan is that they're trying to get payback on this high school bully named Tommy. And what they're going to do, and w- what they do do, is... Uh, <laughs> they jump and jump. Do. <laughs> what? <laughs> Nothing. Continue. <laughs> uh, yeah, basically they uh, fill a candy bag with uh, a soiled underwear. And uh, Tommy and his gang drive by and they grab the candy bag. They realize there's like a bunch of underwear in there. And then they come back after the kids and the kids uh, throw this flaming bag of poop into Tommy's car. Uh, what did you think of this opening? It was a very Stephen King-esque opening to me. Kids like the with bully like, and the gang of yeah. kids, and the bully's way more violent than a bully should be. Yeah, yeah, and kids like talking with like a, a, um, a walkie-talkie. It feels yep. like very it, right? Yeah, it does. Yeah, yeah, same. Um, and then like also taking place like in the late 60s, early 70s. Isn't that like when it took place as well, like the first one? The first one, good question. I want to say that took place in the 50s. You're talking about the 1990 version of it? Uh, no, the one, the one that came out like a, a few oh, years ago before 2017. The one. That one took place in the 80s, I believe. Oh, okay, okay. Got it. Or even yeah. 90s because the kid had a new Kids on the Block poster. Oh, yeah, good point. Maybe good late 80s. Surprising you remember that. Good one. Uh, did you have one of those posters or something? No, I never got into the new kids. Yeah, yeah. It's I certainly too late, wasn't yeah. too cool for it. I just... Didn't care for their music. <laughs> sure, sure. Uh, okay, yeah. So, yeah, definitely a lot of Stephen King vibes. I do, I do like the uh, the chemistry though between the three kids. Like, I, I feel like uh, you know they're kind of funny and they have like a decent relationship. And I thought this was like a good way of like attacking a bully. Thought that felt clever. Yeah, yeah. I like the kids. There's good chemistry with the kids. Yeah. Unfortunately, though, uh, for coming up with this great plan, they didn't have an escape plan, which just like strikes me as like the dumbest thing. Like you, you're throwing poop into some dude's car, and you haven't like thought about how you're gonna get away from them. <laughs> right? How is he gonna react? Yeah, I know. they're just gonna like stand there and laugh. <laughs> so they get chased by Tommy and his gang to a drive-in theater where they hop into this car of this other kid named Ramon, who we saw earlier in the film. He's kind of like this dude who's passing through town. Um, and, uh, he's just chilling at the drive-thru by himself. So Tommy tries to get them to jump out of the car, but Ramon, uh, tells him off and eventually Tommy and his crew are chased out of the drive-thru theater. So this group of four friends now, or like three friends and, and Ramon, 
they head off to this local haunted house uh, or like this house that's literally like abandoned. Um, but it used to be owned by a family named the Bellows and the Bellows had a daughter named Sarah that they kept locked in the basement. So the kids go around exploring this house and something spooky happens. I, I think Chuck is in a closet and when he opens the door, he sees like a woman in this lit up red room uh, that that then disappears. Um, and in the basement, Stella finds this book that has these scary stories in it that uh, Sarah would write when she was trapped in the basement with children's blood, I guess. Uh, what, what did you think of this whole setting? Is this like effective at all? I wasn't really vibing on the haunted house. I really enjoyed the moment where Chuck opened the door and saw the woman sitting on the bed with the dog. Yeah. That was like from a better movie to me. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know. That was like, that, that, that had good chills with it. That was like unique enough and cool. Yeah, it did have good chills. <laughs> yeah. But, oh man, but, there's but, a, a shad has, this is a tangent. I have this book. We have this book in our house called Frog and... It's this big book of frog and toad stories. Do you remember that uh -huh. from when you were a kid? Uh, it sounds vaguely familiar. Two characters, frog and toad, are buddies. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, this sounds right, yeah. And one of the short stories is called The Shivers, and it's just about <laughs> frog and toad sitting, like, telling each other ghost stories. Oh, nice. And my four-year-old really wanted to hear it, and then after it was done, I could tell he looked like he was going to cry. <laughs> Really? They're like and pretty like, scary stories? I was like, do you stories? have the shivers, buddy? And he's like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you saying the chills reminded me of it. Yeah, that scene gave me the shivers when he opens the door and there's this well-lit, it, it was kind of like an artsy shot in an otherwise just gloomy and dull haunted house. Yeah. Yeah. But what nice did you touch. think of the setting? Uh, you know, I, f I felt like it was way too staged. It's like they knew where to go. Like they walked into this house. The lighting was like a little too bright for me for it's like be dark. And everything just felt like laid out really well. Like how she finds the book, how there's like a like a um, uh, a stereotypical like music box and stuff. Uh, it just uh, nothing seemed special about it except for, yeah, that that woman. Uh, that was kind of a cool touch there. Yeah, I agree. Everything's very typical. Run of the, run of the mill comes easy. Yeah, yeah right. Exactly. Uh, but unfortunately, Tommy shows up and locks the group of kids in the basement. Uh, Sarah or Stella is looking through this scary story book that Sarah had written. And she says, Sarah, tell us a story. And we see this like shadow figure creeping on the wall that unlocks the door and lets the kids out. So uh, they think everything's fine. Um, that evening, though, Tommy, he's in a cornfield. He, I think he's doing something with some eggs in a cornfield oh that... yeah his mom tells him he was supposed to deliver some eggs to the neighbors but why why go to the cornfield if, if you're looking for eggs that's that's not where you keep chicken right i think maybe he was cutting through the cornfields to get to the barn oh okay cool and uh in this cornfield we saw earlier that there's a scarecrow named harold that uh, this guy had been kind of like beating with a shovel and uh, his friends and them kind of like beat up on. So we see uh, the scarecrow hanging there. It's got like these bugs crawling over it, which I thought they did that too often. Like every time you'd see his face, it was like the same three bugs crawling over it. Did you get that impression? Yeah, my note says nobody ever questions the amount of bugs coming out of the scarecrow's eyes. <laughs> That's like a proper infestation. Yeah, there. it's really over the top. Like CGI beetles just crawling in and out of his eyes holes. Yeah, it's yeah. ridiculous. Repeatedly, like every time you see it, like three gun, it's it's kind of crazy. I mean, it would have been, honestly, the scarecrow face was kind of creepy, and it would have been way more creepy if they had just eased up on those bugs. Yeah, 
Yeah, I know. The the face I thought they did a really good job with, but then uh, the bugs kind of like killed it. It's like the CGI layer over like something that actually looks cool. Yes. Um but uh yeah, in in this scene, which I you know I kind of I thought this was a fun scene cuz actually this is one of my favorite stories from the book that I remember, but mm. uh Harold uh stalks Tommy down and uh stabs him with the pitchfork and Tommy uh gets turned into like a scarecrow after like vomiting up straws. Um, what did, did you like this kill or this hunt? Was it like scary or effective at all? I liked it as it was beginning because just the very concept alone, again, back to my imagination, you see a scarecrow, you walk back towards it and it's gone. Yeah. You know, that's all you need to see to be scared and for your mind to start to wander. But then as it went, it was just fine. And then. The fact that he turns into a scarecrow himself just felt like a cop-out, even in a PG-13 mm. movie. Yeah. And they did this really hokey transformation scene that felt like it was trying to be a werewolf transformation, and it just didn't work. It didn't look uh, good. yeah. Very CGI yeah. heavy. Yeah, yeah. That transformation scene, was, <laughs> that was a weird one. I wasn't sure they were going with that one. <laughs> yeah, it almost felt like it was supposed to be an homage to like an American werewolf in London or something, but it was... Uh, pretty yeah. bad. Yeah, I would have rather they just uh, killed him or something brutally or something versus have him turn into that. But maybe that's where the PG-13 kicks in. Yeah. Also, it, I think a, there's a bit of a theme that comes into play with that, but we'll get to that later. Okay. And, and it's really disappointing because the original Harold story, like, it's pretty dark and grim and he, like, straight up murders, like, two or three farmers. So uh, I, I I wasn't thrilled about, like, how this ended. But I, I, I thought Harold, like, stalking him in the cornfield was cool. You know, maybe uh, this movie is gentler than the books. Maybe you're right. Maybe it should have been rated R. Yeah, I think it is. It's, they seem to pull back a bit. Um, but anyway, while this happened, uh, Stella was at home with the book that she stole from the haunted house that was Sarah's. And she notices like the story writing itself out in blood, and it basically depicts what happened to Tommy. So there's obviously some magic at play here. The next night, Stella watches as another story starts to write itself, and this one's about her friend Augie. He's eating a stew that has a toe in it, and sure enough, Augie finds a stew in the fridge, he starts eating it, and there's a toe in it, and he gets attacked by a nine-toed, a nine-toed ghoul who drags him away under his bed. Was this scary for you? Yes, this was the only part of the movie that I found to be scary. Was it like the face under the bed? That part alone, like, it was revealed that the conclusion of this scene wasn't as scary. It was more just the fact that this thing was coming and he was under the bed looking all around for it. And Mm -hmm. you had some good suspense as to where it might be and where it's coming from. Yeah, decent buildup for sure. Yeah, and I thought it looked pretty good. It felt a little less CGI heavy than some of the other stuff. Yeah, I would say so, but I think it's more because we saw it like so quickly versus like some of the other monsters in this movie, the camera lingers on a lot longer. Mm. Yeah, so, yeah, that might be true. That might be yeah, true. Yeah, this Good a point. quick one. Um, cool. So then the next night, Stella watches again as like the story unfolds, and this one's called A Red Spot. And in this one, we find out that Charlie's sister, who's had like the spider bite on her face, it explodes while she's in the school bathroom unleashing a flood of baby spiders that again like is cgi right like way too many spiders yes way too many spiders and yeah, yeah. very clear cgi 
clear CGI, yeah. Which, which, uh, yeah, I, th- I thought kind of pulled a like, yeah, r- ruined the scene a little bit, didn't it? Yeah, I agree. Okay. Uh, so the kids show up to rescue her, but she's pretty traumatized and she's taken away. Uh, the kids determine that they need to find a way to stop Sarah's ghost from writing these stories. So they go to visit one of the old uh, people that used to work in the house, uh, and that sends them off to a, psychi- a psychiatric ward where they break in because Sarah used to be kept there and they're trying to get to the medical files. They do break in, but while they're there, the group gets split up and Charlie finds himself in this uh, hallway that's been lit up in red and gets attacked by this bloated-looking corpse that comes at him from, like, four hallways and uh, absorbs him in a big hug. What did you, you make of this? Is that how that story ended? I don't actually remember that story. I remember that, like, visual, but I don't remember the story of that yeah, one. Yeah, I remember that illustration, but I don't remember the, the story. I thought the fat lady looked really silly. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I could see how that drawing could be kind of disturbing, but in a motion picture, I, it just wasn't scary at all to me. Yeah, yeah. I what thought did it you had think? like. I thought it had like a very clumsy way and like, uh, yeah, it definitely looks silly, but I, I thought like that part of it made it a little more scarier, like that this blob of a thing that just looks like really silly and goofy is just like coming at you and you can't stop it. So <laughs> I, I, I was into the visuals on it, but I, I thought the camera work sucked where he's it like just keeps like going back to his face. Then he like tries to run this way and then it goes back to his face. Then he tries to run another way. Like I thought that it did that way too much. So I, I thought that kind of killed it for me. The cinematography uh, but, in general in this movie was really underwhelming. Yeah. Did that surprise you? Yeah, kind of. Because this is like a really professional like expensive production with a big name producer and it just felt everything about it to be honest felt pretty half-assed i know i know and it's so interesting because like it's andre and and i think like what we loved about autopsy of jane doe is like it it left so much of the imagination to to your point earlier and uh and this one it's almost like doing the exact opposite it's going like way overboard and showing you stuff to the extent that it's like not even scary anymore yep yeah, right. He did so much in that movie, which that just like all took place in a room, and and yeah, this one's this big, high, big budget thing, and kind of stinks. Yeah. yeah, yeah, right, right. So yeah, I agree. And in, in, in uh, did the like the red lighting here throw you off? Like, was it way too red? It was way too red. I mean, it was so clear. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong because I it was I was surprised to find out there were actual people to some of these ghouls instead of total CGI, but. It yeah. looked like instead of actually having red lights flashing, they just did it in post-production. Totally. Like it was a red filter or something, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's really what it looks like. So yeah, another disappointing one. Um, so then Stella and Ramon, they get picked up by the police and held in a cell. While they're in this jail, another story starts to write itself and some body parts fa- start falling down the chimney of the prison and assembles Every prison itself. has a chimney, of course. Of course. I mean, Santa's got to show up on Christmas somehow, right? <laughs> <laughs> Even prisoners get Christmas. <laughs> uh, so this uh, monster assembles from these uh, these body parts that have fallen down. It's the jangly man or whatever. And uh, kills the police officer and then goes after Ramon. And uh, Stella helps them escape. I, ca- I kind of got thrown off here when the monster started saying like Ramon's name and calling him a coward. Did, did that? How did this scene hit you? Yeah, I just thought the jangly man in general was too much. Like we saw a lot of him, we saw him moving around a lot. Just like he wore out his welcome 
Um, and Ramon, we learn, is a draft dodger. So this all takes place during the Vietnam War, and they're throwing in bits about that throughout the plot, too. So that's why he's calling him a coward. It was this weird half-assed attempt to say that each of these stories was catered to the kids' specific fears. But I don't know. That felt pretty weak to me. Because um, <laughs> like he says, it's dad used to tell him. I, I don't know. A couple of them say, like, oh, my dad used to tell me that story, or I've had dreams about this woman or this hallway. It's like these are supposed to be part of their deep-seated, like, nightmares and fears, but it's like, well, no, it's not. You just shoved, shoehorned these stories from the books into this plot, um, which if you're going to do that, fine, but don't, like, try to make it like it's got some deeper meaning to the kids. Sure. Yeah, I you know I, I didn't realize that when I watched it, but I, I read that afterwards. But I, I agree with you; they they really forced that element in there that like the kid has to say one thing that like later somehow loosely is going to tie to how they get attacked or killed. But it wasn't like it wasn't like as fluid as you would imagine. Right. Exactly. Which also another I think when you're comparing it to it, I mean, isn't that very much how the Stephen King it stuff worked out? Wasn't that kind of tied to each individual's fear as well? Yeah. Right. Right. This is a very Gosh, the more I think about it, this this script is pretty unoriginal. Damn, derivative. That yeah. sucks. All right. Well, then they, uh, Stella goes back uh, to the haunted house after they escape the prison. She pleads with the ghost of Sarah to stop writing the stories. In doing so, she's transported back in time and finds herself being tortured by Sarah's brothers and comes to realize that Sarah... Uh, was innocent and that it was her family that was like torturing her and locking her in the basement which I thought we knew the whole time so I wasn't sure what the big reveal here was were you? Boy that's a good question yeah I mean right I mean we already knew that yeah yeah it's not like she was like locking herself in the basement I was pretty sure right but uh so yeah so yeah, I'm not sure what what like she comes to terms with here, but I guess anyway, the reveal Stella... is she actually didn't kill any kids. Well, the, oh, the big reveal was that she didn't actually kill any kids. It was the uh, they were poisoning the water and people were dying. Oh, right. Her when... family owned a paper mill, I think, and there was mercury in the water that was killing people. Oh. Wow, I totally missed that part. When when was that explained? Oh. Uh, one hour, 16 minutes, and 47 seconds in. <laughs> I remember I was, I think I, right at that time, I was uh, doing something with my butt cheeks or something. <laughs> <laughs> you were like wiggling your butt cheeks and be like, how easily could this come off? Yeah. Um, yeah, awesome. I don't remember when it when it happened, but they mentioned it a couple of times. Oh, damn. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, good catch. Um, so, yeah, I, I guess so. Uh, Sarah says... Uh, Stella tells the ghost of Sarah, like, stop doing this stuff, stop killing my friends, and I'll let the world know that you're innocent. So Sarah lets out a big growl and disappears, and uh, the ghosts go away, and uh, Stella then leaves, her, her and Ramon leave, and Stella writes in uh, an article about how Sarah was innocent the whole time. Did, did you think this uh, final act like it was a climatic at all for you? No, no, not at all. Yeah, yeah. It felt kind of like a dud. Yeah, I mean, there's just no, I don't know. You know they're going to, like, figure out how to help the ghost. It was kind of surprising that, the like, everyone who was gone, we didn't really see them die, but they didn't come back. Like, there wasn't a yeah. way to fix it. 
Yeah, I had some issue with that. Like, I, I would have loved to see them die, but uh, yeah, you just kind of see them get taken away. The only people that actually get killed are, are the cop and um, that dude in the Tommy, right? Well, um, yeah, and I mean, even Tommy is up in the air. He turns into a uh, a scarecrow. A scarecrow, yeah, yeah. But yeah, and then point. it it ends. Not to do your job for you, but it ends with her like driving with her dad and Chuck's sister saying like, Chuck and Augie are still gone, but I know there's a way to bring them back and we won't stop until we find them. Yeah. That and, and Ramon, uh, finally going to like off to Vietnam. Right. Uh, yeah. Ramon goes to Vietnam. Yeah. That's such a weird ending, right? It was like kind of like this, uh, like where her dad and, uh, Charlie's sister going. <laughs> right. Like just the three of us, like these two other characters yeah. you kind of met earlier in the movie. Yeah. Um, also, this is, maybe I'm a sap here, but this was such a stereotypical plot line, mm-hmm. very generic in a lot of ways, and I was so surprised that Ramon and Stella didn't kiss before he left for the war. Oh, Like, there was yeah. a romance budding between them the entire time, it seems. It was so such a cliche movie in so many ways. Yeah. They didn't give us the satisfaction of a, of a kiss here. They were just like, okay, see you later. Yeah, I think he really sees that she signed her letter to him, love, and he's like, ah. <laughs> I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm just like, come on. Yeah, yeah, shit, man. Yeah, good point. Yeah, that that is really weird. That because uh, yeah, they're building up that connection the whole time. It's interesting. But Ramon, I feel like, is such a random character that they threw into the story. And I feel like it was just to bring in, like, that war angle. Because, like, in the background, like, you're hearing, like, these presidential debates and talk about the war. So they had to, like, throw in, like, this drifter, uh, which, I don't know, did, did you feel like that had a place in this movie? Like, did you understand what the connection was? You know, I thought the Vietnam and Nixon commentary felt forced, um... And it kind of was, but I, as I was thinking more about it, I thought a little less so. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there might be more Vietnam subtext going on because of the fact that the three characters that quote-unquote died were draft-aged boys, and we didn't actually see them die and the movie ends with the possibility that Stella could find a way to get them back. So, like, oh, as maybe symbolism that they had gone off to war and, you know, the country or their loved ones are hoping, like, we can bring our boys home and end yeah. this, this stupid war. Dude, yeah, interesting. But Wait, you kind of, you... like, poke a hole in the subtext by having text right alongside it with Ramon actually going off to war. Yeah, <laughs> That foils that whole uh, thing. <laughs> yeah, I, to me, it's a little weird. But yeah, yeah some of yeah. it felt like the Vietnam War and the Nixon commentary felt a little bit like, like, hey, Gen Z, the Vietnam War was a thing and it was bad. Like, you should look into it. <laughs> it just felt very, this was very much a movie for kids in every way. Uh, you for think teens. So? Oh, for teens. Yeah, I'll give you young teens. teens. Yeah. yeah. Young, young adults. Pre-teens, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, uh, that, that, that's true. And um, yeah, it's interesting. I, I feel like there's some educational here components here about the war and uh, the draft and all that stuff. I couldn't tie it, but I, I like your theory though that like uh, it's a metaphor for like the lost kids. Uh, yeah, who who ended up uh, never went to war and never came back or something. That's right. that's very interesting. Right, or even they were gone and you know you didn't know if they were going to make it or die or come back home or what. Yeah. 
I love that theme, and if, if that was the intent, that's really cool. But I, I think they could have done a better job of um, tying those two together because it, it just it doesn't feel tied very well in the movie. Yeah, I agree. And then the another theme which they outright tell us via Sarah's or Stella's voiceover. I think she says, "Stories hurt, stories heal." Like mm-hmm. how powerful stories can be, and the stories people told about Sarah Bellows—that she was this child killer. Uh, like demonized her and made her this horrible ghost and villain and the story that Stella tells which is the truth is going to set it right and I thought maybe you could perhaps tie that to the stories that our leaders told us about why we were fighting in Vietnam versus the stories told by anti-war advocates and stuff like that yeah that's deep yeah I don't know I don't know if that's uh, the route they were trying to go or not you really put some brain power into this I'm surprised (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's, that's good. <laughs> I really strained. That's, yeah, I know. You're kind of selling me on this movie now. Like, uh, if, if those things were actually, like, intended, like, that's that's awesome. Well, uh, I mean, sounds... don't get too sold, because okay. I, I, I think it was just done poorly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Execution here sucked, but... Uh, yeah. They had, like, this radio DJ throughout, kind of, like, commenting on the news and the war in Vietnam. That felt very anthology-esque, didn't it? Yeah, I think we've seen one an anthology that's like has a similar vibe of like a radio host. Uh, what's that yeah, one? Yeah, like Christmas a- Horror Story has a radio host tying them all together. Southbound has a DJ on the radio tying everything together. Um, I think it's in some other anthologies as well. And it, yeah, this one Canadian one, Poonty Town or something. Pony Pool. Pony Pool. Pony Town. <laughs> I think that's a Canadian porno. Oh, no kidding. <laughs> uh, but actually, this was a, a co-production between the U.S. and Canada, by the way. Oh, okay, okay. Did this give you, like, Mortuary Collection vibes? Or is that what it's yeah. called? Yeah. Yeah, I think it's more similar to that, which, uh, I, yeah, that one definitely wasn't a kid's movie, but it, it kind of had, like, the same kind of uh, f- fantasy kind of elements and, like, music to it, I, I would say. Yeah, but that felt more something adult, about right? this. That it had a bit of a spirit, like, a whimsical spirit of anthologies about it. Right. It did. Yeah, good point. And uh but but a lot like more violent though at least, I think. Yeah. Were yeah. you surprised not to see the illustrations from the book like in the during the credits? Oh, no, I, feel like I didn't that pay would have been a fun way to finish out the movie just I mean, I feel like those illustrations are the book's biggest legacy. Yeah, that would have been a great tie back. Yeah. Have those alongside. Yeah, that was a miss. Uh, but yeah, what did you think overall then of, of the film? It sounds like you loved it. <laughs> I didn't like this movie, um, <laughs> but I don't know. I also feel like the screenplay, it kind of just moves along and it doesn't have glaring faults, but it's just a really generic story. Um, yeah. And I didn't find anything compelling about the way it was shot, like I said before. Some of the scare sequences were done competently, but the CGI heavy stuff just ruined it for me. Yeah. Uh, there's also just a, I couldn't quite get the tone. It wasn't quite dark enough or quite light enough, right? Right. <laughs> yeah. Cause, I mean, I, I, don't, I couldn't tell, like, but like scenes like where it was supposed to be really dark, it was actually like pretty light. So it never felt like you're really in the dark or anything. And then, yeah, uh, it's like if people are swearing, you're not seeing a lot of blood or anything. So it's, yeah, definitely not like leaning into like gore or anything. So, I did think the character of Chuck was kind of funny, though. Oh, yeah. He was entertaining. He had a couple of funny lives. 
I, I, mean, I liked him. I thought Augie was pretty funny too. Like his Halloween costume as a as like what was he like one of those clowns or not a clown? Uh, one of those old school. French yeah, things. it was some like clown from Commedia dell'arte. Pin what? Pin? Uh, I can't remember. <laughs> yeah, something with a P. Something literary. Yeah, that was over my head. Um, yeah, I just felt like it was very generic, and it wasn't. It was never satisfying, you know? The scares weren't that satisfying. Even if you, like, buy into the cliche, typical storytelling, like, the two of them not kissing at the end, not to get hung up on that. <laughs> but it's just, like, weirdly unsatisfying. Just, what are you doing? Yeah. It, the the whole thing just felt really half-assed to me. Yeah, yeah. It did. Yeah, it, very, like, to the script. It didn't take any chances. Very, like, middle-of-the-road kind of generic uh, story being told here. Generic dialogue, too, like... Yeah. Back to that Vietnam War commentary, some character, side character, sees Nixon on TV and says, Tricky Dick. That's no name <laughs> for a president. <laughs> it's just like, what? That's just super yeah. dull, obvious commentary. That's an example of what I was talking about, how it feels like the movie's just saying, hey, preteens, here's what was happening at this point in history, and this sure. is how some people felt about it. Yeah, yeah. I, I think yeah. it was just generally a weird decision to put this in 1968 too the books were written in the 80s and 90s it just mm -hmm. odd to me it's a strange choice and part of me wonders if in the sequel they're gonna make more sense of that um with like the setting in this context but yeah definitely as a standalone movie it just seemed really random to, to make that decision apparently guillermo del toro considers 1968 the end of an um, an era for america huh which I wouldn't argue with, but I don't know if scary stories to tell in the dark belongs in that era. <laughs> that tells the story. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. I mean, I guess we went to space uh, in 1969, maybe? Hmm. Or supposedly we went to space. But <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> um, yeah, it was in the late 60s. I can't remember when. Oh, God. I'm not even... It was sometime in the 60s. That's all I'll say, because I always... Supposedly. Step in, the, <laughs> step in your jump dump when I try to recount historical <laughs> events well what did you think of the movie uh, and why no, did you I, make I us watch it again yeah yeah I, I agree with all the same things uh i thought maybe on rewatch it would hold up a little better and maybe you'd bring like some new enthusiasm to it but no like i was, I was kind of bored watching it uh, i think most of the reasons that you mentioned and then I, I think it hurts a little bit extra because the original stories were so good and like still scarier than i think anything in this film was and so i almost feel like it did it a, a disservice thought the acting also could have uh use some benefits. I didn't think Stella was like the strongest lead, like parts where she was like yelling to Sarah in the house and stuff like that. Mm. Uh, didn't really sell it on me. And then the random cameo of like Hank from Breaking Bad didn't make sense. Um, so yeah, I, I, yeah, the, a lot of this film just felt kind of uh, haphazard and, and not really well done. You think the casting of a, an actor who played Hank in Breaking Bad didn't make sense? It didn't, did it? <laughs> I mean, I don't think the casting of someone based on their prior work has to make sense. Oh, well, yeah, I mean, it was just like you, you have like this decent actor who's like, you know, got got fame or and like people like recognize his face, but he's like in this role, which really didn't have a purpose. I'm assuming in the sequel, he'll have a bigger role because there's they're hinting at like some background stuff with uh, her mom leaving her as well. And so she's obviously going through stuff, but it was just like a, a, a waste of like a, a, a prominent actor. I actually didn't film. think his performance was that good in this. Yeah. I mean, he didn't really have a chance to shine. He was like, well, we saw him for like two minutes. He was probably just like, whatever, I'm just cashing this check. 
Yeah, exactly. Um, there was a line, and this probably won't really apply unless someone's just watched the movie and remembers this, but speaking of um, the girl who played Stella not being the best actor, and I think this was more direction than acting, mm-hmm. but there's a scene where they try to burn the book and it doesn't happen. And then, like, the moment it gets out of the fire, Stella just goes, we know we can't burn or destroy it, but how much do we actually know about Sarah Bellows? And it was just like, oh, my God, are you kidding me? It was just, like, the most rote yeah. reading of a uninspired piece of dialogue that's just so yeah trite. I, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, dialogue was really rushed. <laughs> this is terrible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. All right. Well, anything else you want to call out on it, or you want to jump to the rating? Oh, I guess I, uh, I'll i ease up and we can jump to the rating. My rating's probably not as bad as I'm making it sound. but Oh, wow. Okay, I'm excited. All right, Give, give me many, a scale. Uh, spider eggs on your face. I gave it two spider eggs on my face. Oh, nice. I think it was a competent movie in a lot of ways. It just failed in a lot of ways, too. Like, I think I'm such a sucker for traditional storytelling with, like, your few main characters who have relationships with each other that go through trials and tribulations. And if you've got that, I'm engaged. Yeah. And this did have that, but that was about all it had. Um, oh, sure. So once I get into one territory, I like truly hate something. Yeah. But I just plain old didn't like this. I also, I'm not the target market, but that's the thing. I kind of am because like this is banking off the nostalgia. So. You're right. Exactly. I, I think it should have like, it was kind of like punching down when it should have just uh, treated its audience a bit more intelligently. Yeah. Uh, well, so who do you think would watch this and enjoy it? Like, uh, what what age group? Like, 10, 12? I think people who are, so we're 38, folks, and the books were, re- some of the books were released in the 80s. So I would say any anywhere between, like, our age and 50 years old with a kid who's, like, 10 to 13 would be like prime time, prime uh, target audience. Yeah, bonding moment, parent-child bonding. Yeah, yeah. And nice. I don't think, I don't know what kids would think of this movie. Maybe a lot of kids saw it and liked it, but I think a parent yeah. would have been like, eh. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I think you're right. Yeah, d- definitely uh, not great tribute to the source material. Uh, and so, you know, I, I, I was close to you. I, I had a two spider eggs on the face because like I, I think there were some cool things they tried to do here and uh the, the idea of like tying uh, the kids to like the, the ways that get got killed even though it was kind of clumsily done but then i had to bring it down to one and a half eggs on the face because uh of the personal connection that i feel like i have with your the source material and mm. the fact that that was like way grimmer and darker and scarier than anything in this movie was which uh, was a real letdown for me sure yeah the conversation we just had made me want to go to 1.5 but i'll stick to my two all right, sounds good. <laughs> All right, so yeah, blended bummer, one. man. Well, let me ask you: yeah. Do you remember enjoying this more when you came out of the theater? No, no. I think we we're. Uh, I, I think I saw it with Kyle, and we we're both kind of scratching our heads on what we just saw. So, uh, no. <laughs> Can I ask a follow-up question? Sure. Why did you choose to do an episode on it? Oh, I just I, <laughs> it came out on Netflix, uh, so l- looking for like yeah something new and fun to watch there. And you know I, I feel like it was like watchable. Uh, I didn't hate it as like some of the other movies that that we've seen. Um, and uh, yeah, kind of kind of thought it'd be worth revisiting, and uh, thought maybe you might find something in it that uh, I was missing or something. Which it sounds like you did actually. So thanks thanks for pointing out some like new interpretations at least of what was intended there. You're you're welcome. 
I'm glad yeah. I could bump your two back down to a 1.5. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I, yeah, I really feel like uh, we, we should uh, talk about the book sometime because it's, it's a, if, if you can find it at your library, let me know. Yeah, yeah. I'll have to at least uh, page through it in the aisles of the library and have a librarian ask me to leave. <laughs> ask them where the uh, cassette, bo- the books with the cassettes are. <laughs> it's, it's a combo. sure thing all right anything else to add here i think that's all i got all right well that is it for our discussion on scary stories to tell in the dark if you enjoyed the episode please leave us a five-star rating on apple Podcasts. that's going to help other people find our show and we always appreciate the feedback if you want to join the discussion you can find our links on horrormovieclub.com or shoot us an email at podcast at horrormovieclub.com we're going to be announcing next week's movie on facebook and twitter in case you want to watch it before the next episode we're also on Discord, where we're chatting up with a few other listeners and horror fan, uh, or and horror fans. So you can find that link on our websites. Our logo is by Amy May Popart, so check her out on Etsy.com. And until next time, if you're planning to throw a pile of flaming shit at someone, think of uh, a solid escape plan because odds are they're probably gonna come after you and not just kind of hang out there with the burning shit on their laps. <laughs> Have you ever done something like that? You got me. Here I sit. <laughs> yeah. I'll just nice remain here done. until I starve to death now. <laughs> exactly. You ever you ever uh, light some shit on fire? Oh my gosh, man. It was at a sleepover in grade school. I guess, I don't know, maybe like 6th or 7th grade at a friend's house. Mm-hmm. It was the morning and somebody like got this idea to do it and we were all walking around in this posse. <laughs> and we were like, we're not really going to do this, right? No, we're not going to do this. This is stupid. And then one kid just went up to a porch and lit the thing on fire. Wait, when when did he sh- when did you guys shut in the bag? Was it before he left the house or after? I think he found some dog poop and put it in oh. the bag. Oh, okay, okay. That's a little, and uh, we were up all night at the sleepover. We, I like remember being home, sleeping on the couch because I was exhausted, and my mom just screaming at the top of her <laughs> lungs. <laughs> These people have like called the cops and everything. Oh my gosh, it was horrible. Busted. Well,